0: The following resource is from lnpc.org, and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lnpc.org/give. A reading from Luke chapter nine, verses forty-six through sixty-two. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great." John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me, but he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home." Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated.
1: I want to begin by adding my uh, welcome to that of John's. We're glad you're here this week. Uh, Whether you're visiting with us for the first time or a long-time member, we're glad you're here. I know it feels a little different this week. It's family camp weekend, so lots of our congregation is down in Mentone at at Alpine Camp, at church camp. Uh, They'll be back with us next week, Um, but we're glad that you're here with us this week. Uh, Before we uh, look at this passage, uh, let's pray. As you can tell, I have about half a voice, which is way more than I had Wednesday when I met (laughs) with Montgomery's. Uh, So we're praying for God to sustain me in my weakness. So let's pray. Father, indeed uh, you tell us in your word that your strength uh, is made clear in our weakness. And uh, I would ask this morning that you would continue to sustain my voice. Uh, Thank you for the healing that it has experienced the last few days. Um, And thank you for the chance we have this morning to open your word. And we pray you would Press its truths deep into our hearts. Lord, we, uh, we sang just a few minutes ago to take your truth, to plant it deep in us and shape us and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts, our deeds of faith. And that is our prayer, Lord. It's more than just a song. It's our prayer. So work in us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Indeed, as Will Nettleton told us last week, we have uh, finished the first sermon. Really, Deuteronomy is, is, is largely three sermons of Moses. We finished the first one last week. So this week, we return to where we left off at the end of the spring. We return to Luke's gospel. We'll go back to Deuteronomy after Advent in January. In light of that, I thought it might be helpful this morning to, uh, as well as appropriate, just to pause a minute and refresh our memories as to where we left off and what we saw. In, in, in Luke chapter 9, which is where we found ourselves, find ourselves this morning, it's an incredible chapter and we've seen so much. We saw it began with the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children from five loaves and two fish and then he asked the disciples when he was alone with them he asked them the single most important question that any of us will ever wrestle with he asked them after asking them who do people say that i am he said what about you who do you say that i am and peter answered you're the christ you're the son of the living god you're the long-awaited messiah We heard that, but then we heard immediately after that, Jesus commands his disciples not to reveal his identity. Don't to reveal it to anyone, but then he said this too. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day raised to life. We saw the transfiguration also where Peter, James and John go up on the mountain with Jesus to pray and Jesus is transfigured and appears they're talking with Moses and Elijah and not only that they heard the Father God the Father proclaim this this is my son my chosen one listen to him It's been an incredible chapter and the chapter ended With Jesus saying this to his disciples in verse 44, he says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But Luke tells us they didn't understand. They were afraid to ask him. So that kind of brings us up to date with where we pick up this morning. It's a weighty chapter. There's strong encouragement there to let the reality that the promised Messiah would be delivered to the hands of sinful men to let that reality sink in. And we wonder, what's gonna happen next? What will be their response? Will Jesus' message sink in? And the very next thing we find is they're arguing about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest among the disciples? It's really kind of astounding, isn't it? You think about it, they go from one verse Luke goes from one verse from words of grace filled self sacrifice, where Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, to die for the sins of men. We go from grace filled self sacrifice words by Jesus to words of graceless self centeredness by the disciples. And Luke is showing us here in these passages that we'll see this morning, he's showing us how Jesus responds to his disciples how he shows them what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus. That's what we're looking at this morning. Where will faithfully following Jesus lead us to? That's the question. So if you look in your outline in the bulletin, you'll see first faithfully following Jesus leads us to a proper understanding of greatness that results in humble service. Again, verse 46, just to start with, all of a sudden, Luke says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, that, that kind of shocks us when we hear that. It's appalling. I mean, remember the disciples, they were basically nobodies, right? Uneducated fishermen, tax collectors. God had graciously redeemed their hearts, regenerated their hearts, given them hearts of flesh in place of their hearts of stone. He'd given them the gifts of faith and repentance. He'd called them to himself. He'd gifted them for service. He'd used them powerfully in ministry. And their response to his message of, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, their response is arguing over which one of them is the greatest. It probably wasn't that they were saying, oh, I'm the greatest. It was probably more subtle than that. The point is they were using the standards of greatness adopted from the world So they come into the kingdom focusing on themselves. I loved uh, Teddy Roosevelt, y'all probably heard this quote. Teddy Roosevelt's daughter said this about her dad. I hope my children would never say this about me. She said this, the problem with father was that he always wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. (laughs) If you've read much of Teddy Roosevelt, you get that. He wanted to be the center of attention. We've all got a bit of that in us. We want to be significant, maybe not necessarily noticed and up front, but important in somebody's eyes. So they're arguing there about which one of them is the greatest. And Jesus in verse 47 says, or Luke writes, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, Jesus, we're told in the, in the other gospel accounts, Jesus didn't hear their argument, but he knew their hearts. Nothing's hidden from God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He knew exactly what was going on. So he gives them this beautiful object lesson to help them see their hearts and to help us See, our hearts. See, in the, in the ancient Jewish culture, children were the least significant individuals in the whole of the culture. The Talmud, uh, the, the writings and the teachings of the, of the rabbis regarded this, regarded spending time with children is a waste of time. That's how children were viewed. And if you remember, on another occasion, uh, some some children are brought to Jesus. Some parents bring some children to Jesus, and the disciples basically say, "Get them out of here." Jesus didn't have time for children. I love how Kent Hughes points out this. He says the disciples undoubtedly thought, just in line with their culture, that greatness is determined by the company one keeps. The great associate with the great. The great deal with matters of great significance, and children are neither significant nor great. They're dependent and needy and have no status. That's how children were viewed. And now, think about it too. The transfigurations just happened, so they're sitting like we, Peter, James, and John are like, I don't know what y'all were doing, but we were with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. So Jesus brings this child to his side and says, whoever receives this child in my name, receives me. Whoever... Uh, for who is least among you is the one who is great. And here's what he's not saying. He's not saying you'll find me through being nice to children. That's not his point. He is saying how you relate to a child and by implication to those who are lowly and insignificant in the world's eyes, how you relate to those will indicate whether or not you have received me. He's saying my followers welcome the lowly, and the least, and the lost. My followers welcome those the the world thinks are useless and worthless and insignificant. So his bottom line is really this, the one who is great among you is not the one who boasts of the greatest relationships with the most prominent people, it's the one who's prepared to identify with the lowly. Prepared to receive them and minister the grace and the kindness of God to them. That's greatness. I love reading Kent Hughes, but sometimes it's uh, quite challenging. This is one of the quotes that I pulled out of his sermon on this. He said, uh, if all or nearly all of our friends are the great, the well-off, the well-educated, the accomplished, the comfortable, then we are not the men and women our master wants us to be. I think he's right. What he's saying there, it presupposes humility Humility that's revealed in service to those who have the least to give us in return. Jesus says that's greatness. And then I love how John responds. You wonder if his conscience was bothering him a little bit. John responds with this interesting statement in verse 49. He says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. We don't have a lot of time to, to deal with that, but, but ever so briefly, let me just say this. When the disciples went out and ministered in Galilee, they encountered a man, apparently, who was casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they tried to stop him, and he tells us why. They tell us why, because he does not follow with us. See, what he's saying is, he was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he's not one of us. He's not one of the 12, He's not one of the chosen, the privileged. You see, the the sin here, the significance here is their sin's got the same root as as the uh, discussion of greatness. They're proud of their chosen status as one of the 12. It's the sin of self-importance, the sin of exclusivity rather than a welcoming spirit to others. And Jesus answers with this quick, quick prohibition and a principle, he said, don't stop him. That's the prohibition. Don't stop him. He's doing it in my name. Whoever is not against you is for you. Faithfully following Jesus, he's showing us here. Luke is showing us. It starts with a proper understanding of greatness that results in service to others, to the least and the lowly, those who can't even give us anything back. But it also, it also leads us to secondly here, a merciful spirit towards those who oppose Jesus. I love these verses. Look at this. When the days drew near for him, verse 51, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So taken up like the death and the ascent, resurrection and ascension. He set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. You know, you read those verses and it's clear Uh, That Jerusalem now loomed large for Jesus. The cross now loomed large. We're told twice that he set his face toward Jerusalem. And guess what? The shortest route, they're in Capernaum now. From Capernaum down to Jerusalem, the shortest route is right through Samaria right through the towns and villages of the Samaritans. So Jesus sends these advanced party, he sends a few people ahead to make arrangements for Jesus and the 12 and all those who might've been following along to stay in these villages, to plan for his arrival. And the Samaritans don't want any part of it. They reject them. And and you know, there's mutual animosity for hundreds of years between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews Uh, very proudly looked down their noses on the Samaritans as racial half-breeds. And that's because the the Jews uh, in Samaria had intermarried with their Assyrian conquerors uh, hundreds of years before. So now they're racial half-breeds. They're religious apostates. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. They worshiped elsewhere. So the Jews hated the Samaritans, but that was fine because the Samaritans hated the Jews right back. So when you think about that, the response of James and John, it's not all that surprising. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? And you think, well, were they really serious? They were actually serious. There's some background here that I really love to this. There's some background. They believed, remember, Peter and James and John had just been with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. They'd just seen Elijah. They knew their Old Testament. Malachi said that, one like Elijah would come, the Messiah would be one like Elijah. They probably assumed that Elijah's life might be a bit of a pattern of what the Messiah's life would be. And they remembered, if you're taking notes, write down 2 Kings chapter one. It's a great chapter. King Ahaziah twice sends a captain and 50 soldiers to go capture Elijah. He does it twice twice. Both times, Elijah responds by saying this. This is what we read in 1 Kings 1, like verse 10. It says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you, he says this to the captain, and your 50, and it did. Both times. So James and John are probably remembering this uh, from their, uh, their earlier days, from, from like hearing the Sunday school stories, right, the Sabbath school stories, and they're thinking, this would be a great time for us to do that again. Just take out those wicked Samaritans. But this goes so different though. Ahaziah was rejecting the living God. And the Samaritans here are just responding to the rejection of the Jews. And in their rush to so righteously call for God's judgment, it seems they've ignored the very clear but difficult teaching of Jesus from just two chapters before. In Luke 6 Three chapters, doing math here. Luke 6, we read this, and we've heard this all the time, but we read this, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Think about that. I mean, that just kind of, we've heard it so much. Love your enemies, disadvantage yourself yourself, For the sake of your enemies. Do good. Actively do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Bless with words those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Advocate in prayer with God the Father for those who are abusing you. That's the ethic of the kingdom of God. And and it hasn't changed, but they missed it. They forgot it like we often do also. The kingdom of God, the ethic of the kingdom of God is about mercy. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, right, that Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So Jesus turns, he rebukes the disciples and they move on to another town. And what he's saying there to the disciples, what he's saying to us is mercy should mark our lives. Not spiteful revenge towards those who are against the mission of the kingdom, but mercy. Steady resolve and mercy. I was thinking about it this week. It's the question really for all of us. As As a church, as individuals, how are we doing there? Does mercy just mark our lives? Advocating for those who abuse us, blessing those who curse us, actively doing good, who hate us, disadvantaging ourselves. Can we honestly say Can we honestly say that our lives are marked by a merciful spirit or if we're honest, is it really marked by more of a judgmental spirit? Are we trying to build bridges to others or put up barriers? Here he's calling for a merciful spirit, not just towards each other, which I think sometimes as individuals, even in the church, we're not real good at, but he's calling us to do it to those who oppose the message of the gospel to still have a merciful spirit. It's amazing. Faithfully following Jesus leads us to a proper understanding of greatness, a merciful spirit towards those opposed G- who's opposing Jesus, and thirdly, it leads us to an unwavering allegiance. You might say a steadfastness in spite of discomforts and distractions in life. Look at verse 57 down through the end. As they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead, the spiritually dead, he's talking about there, to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, when I first read that, there's something so attractive about that first guy's response or his his offer. He said, I will follow you wherever you go. It reminds me of Ruth's declaration to Naomi in the book of Ruth, Ruth says, For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. But something, when you look at Jesus' response, you know, something's not right. The man probably saw the crowds and had heard them about miracles and had seen some miracles, and he thought, it's going to be good to follow him. He's the center of it all. I'm going to follow him. And 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 yet William Henderson says this about it. He says, the man wanted to be Christ's disciple, yes but he didn't understand the implications of discipleship. And then Hendrickson lists them, namely, implications of discipleship, namely, self-denial, sacrifice, service, and suffering. Those are the implications of discipleship. That comes with it. Jesus is saying even the animals, like even the foxes, even the birds, they've got dwelling places they can return to. At the end of the day, there's a certainness to their life, a security there in their life that Jesus himself doesn't have. He's not even received in these villages. And his point, I think, is simply this. True discipleship, Jesus would say, is not a walk in the park. True discipleship involves struggle and hardship and self-denial and sacrifice And then this second man comes along, and Jesus invites him to follow, and the second man says, well, let me first go and bury my father. And again, on the surface, that delay, the request for a delay, it seems reasonable, but there's a debate about it. Some people say, some scholars say, well, the man's father uh, was not yet dead, and he was basically saying, let me go back and live out the rest of my dad's days, and others say, well, he was dead, but he should have been attending to the the job as a son in the first place, I'm not going to get all into that, but I think the bottom line is this. He's saying family obligations, yes, they're important, but the priority of the kingdom is higher. The urgency to proclaim the kingdom outweighs other things. And then there's the man at the end, the third man, who says, I'll follow you, but first, let me go say farewell to those at my house. And again, we go, well, what's what's wrong with that? It seems reasonable, but Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So again, Jesus can see his heart, things that we can't do. Jesus sees that he wants to follow Jesus on his own terms. And in an agrarian society, when they heard this, they would have known exactly what he's talking about. We, maybe not so much, but once you put your hand to the plow, once you start plowing in a forward direction, you can't look back. You can't plow a straight furrow if you're looking back like this. Have you ever tried to ride your bike and not look dead ahead? Have you ever tried to ride your bike and look backwards? To plow in one direction and look in another just doesn't work. And Jesus is saying to him, if you're going to follow me, there's a singular focus in your life on what's ahead, not what you've left behind. It requires Following him requires complete allegiance to him, not some fickle, half-hearted hollow, half hearted following him on our own terms. My time is almost gone. My voice is almost gone. Let me close with a great story uh, of a follower of Jesus who's been in the news uh, the latter part of this week a lot. She was born Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor. We know her as Queen Elizabeth II. How many of y'all were like reading about her this week? There are lots of quotes about her. Some of, the, some of the best quotes were actually Queen Victoria quotes. I found one. Brian and I were so excited. And then we found out it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't Queen Elizabeth. It was Queen Victoria. So uh, I found this story, though. I have a friend in, in uh, Lexington, Kentucky at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church named Robert Cunningham. And, and Robert Cunningham tells this story. This is what he wrote. He says, there are a lot of stories being shared about Her Majesty the Queen, but I got one that tops them all. I once had the honor of touring the UK Parliament with a man who knew its history better than anyone and I asked him for the craziest story he could share and he did not disappoint. Every legislative session begins with a visit from the Queen and it's a very regal tradition. She wears her robe and crown, she processes down a hallway lined with the Queen's guards who literally strike the stone walls behind them with their swords to make sparks fly as she walks by. The hallway ends at the House of Lords, where the queen enters and takes her seat on the throne and essentially commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. Several years ago, they were forced to break with tradition a bit to accommodate the queen due to her age. Because there was a grand staircase that leads to the hallway and it became too much for her to climb. So they decided to start using the elevator. They call them over there lifts. Have you ever been over there? They're tiny too. We got these huge elevators. They're really tiny over there. Uh, Well, the first year they did this, it was a big mistake. The lift operator accidentally pushed the button for the wrong floor. Rather than the entrance to the parliament, he pressed the button for the maintenance floor. The lift gate went up, the doors opened, and Alice from the cleaning crew with her head down pushes the cleaning cart into the elevator as she has done countless times before. Only this time she has pinned the Queen of England against the wall of the small lift. The doors closed behind her and Alice is stuck in the lift with the queen in her guard and she lets out an expletive not fitting for the presence of royalty. I'll let you fill in the blank of what that might have been. Then an awkward silence covered the lift, no one knowing quite what to do. The silence was broken by the queen's uncontrollable laughter. And then the most remarkable invitation... Rather than opening the doors to let Alice off, the queen asked the lift operator to take them to the proper floor. The doors opened and to everyone's shock out walks Her Majesty the Queen and Alice the maintenance worker. Then the queen and all of her regalia along with Alice in her maintenance uniform processed side by side down the royal hallway. But it gets even better. Once a year, for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to Buckingham Palace, invited for high tea with her newfound friend, Queen Elizabeth. not that a great story? It's a great example of one whose life was transformed by Jesus, and in following him really did gain a proper perspective on greatness, resulting in a whole life, 96 years of humble service. My prayer is that you and I would be so transformed by the grace of our Lord that our lives would look more like that too. Let's pray. Father, as great as a story as that is of Queen Elizabeth, and we thank you for her, as great as a story as that is, we know that uh, it's just a picture, a weak picture really of the ultimate one who understood greatness, who gave his life in humble service for us. It's a picture, Lord, reminding us of Jesus One who had a merciful spirit towards those even who opposed him. One who had unwavering allegiance in spite of the, not just discomforts and distractions, but in spite of the reality that he would go to the cross. We simply ask that you would work powerfully in our hearts, Lord, that we might learn to more faithfully follow you, that we might have our lives transformed by your spirit, that we might... Lord, have a proper understanding of what greatness really looks like and live it out well, that we might have a much more merciful heart towards others, Lord, even those who oppose you, and that we too, Lord, might press on with a steadfastness that's stronger than any discomforts or any distractions we face. We ask all of this in the saving name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.